This is Radio Free Bay Ridge. Hi, Bay Ridge. Welcome back. We hope you enjoyed our last episode. And if you're a new listener who just found us, we're so glad to have you here. I'm Rachel. I'm Dan. We've got a very crowded Democratic primary field this year in CD11. And just so you guys know, um, you'll be hearing a lot in the media about Staten Island, Staten Island, Staten Island. for con- Staten Island. For Congressional District 11. But Bay Ridge, South Brooklyn, this is your fight, too. You might have heard of the person that currently heads up Congressional District 11. It came up a lot during the most recent tax bill. His name is Dan Donovan. So he was one of the few Republicans that actually voted against the bill. Well, he voted against it the first time around because of the state and local tax property deductions. And he says that it's not necessarily a bad bill. It just needs to be tweaked. Well, and that it's unfair to New Yorkers and unfair to Staten Island and that we send more money to the federal government than we get back, all of which is true. But he hasn't addressed the Medicare cuts, the Social Security cuts, some of the knock-on effects of the tax bill, and we haven't been able to get a straight answer out of him as to whether or not those are even priorities. So if you care, give his office a call, ask them what's up. In that spirit, we're giving you the opportunity to listen with the people who are going to be facing Donovan and or Grimm coming up in this next election cycle. So you already heard from Omar Vaid, actually, if you listened to our previous episode on nativism, and we might be getting Omar back in to talk a little bit more um, because he did have a smaller segment in that episode. But today we actually want to start off with someone who just left the race. We're really pleased that Boyd Melson could come in and speak with us. Um, thank you, Boyd, and away we go. I appreciate you having me here. Thank yeah. you. Very close to my home. So, um, Boyd, um, maybe introduce yourself to people who might not know who you are. We do have a, a crowded um, Democratic primary race this year on Staten Island. So, Sure. Uh, I, grew up, I grew up in Brooklyn. I'm an Army brat. My father was stationed on Fort Hamilton, and I lived in military housing first in Manhattan Beach. They had a block of military housing in Brooklyn. I went to PS195 for elementary school, and then I went to Mark Twain for junior high school. And then I went to Brooklyn Tech for two years before we moved up to Westchester and White Plains and moved out of Manhattan Beach going into eighth grade. So I was th- thir- 12, almost 13, on Fort Hamilton Army Base. I lived there for three years. My father was a recruiter for many years. He put 26 years in the armed forces altogether, six years in the Navy. He was a, he was a corpsman, a medic for a Navy SEAL team. And then he was in the Army for 20 years, put a career in. My mother served three years. They both met in Germany when they both stationed out there. My mother was a nurse. And my mother has a jewelry business right here. She heard my uncle in Diker Heights, and that's 7310 13th Avenue. It's between 73 and 74, and they've been there for 32 years, I think, now. Wow. They're, uh, wow. they're, my mother, mom is retiring, so they're having sales right now. This is the oh. last year. This may be the last month, even. Oh, Whew. wow. Hint. Hint. <laughs> Run, do not walk. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I grew up here. I grew up uh, the Cub Scouts since five years old, Boy Scouts through Eagle Scout. I played the saxophone growing up, and uh, my mother was born in Israel, and her parents were from Poland, and they're Holocaust survivors. I'm first generation on my mother's side, and my father, my father's Louisiana Creole. He was born in New Orleans, but the family lived in Baton Rouge. The reason why he was born in New Orleans is because in 1952, when my grandmama's water broke. They did not allow black families to be born in the better hospitals in Baton Rouge. So they had to make the trip out to New Orleans. That was for him and for his brother before the whole family then moved to Compton in Los Angeles. And between Compton and Watts, over over 13 years, moved 22 times. Uh, 
two, seven siblings, two bedrooms <laughs> each time. Wow. A welfare to get mm-hmm. them through. Yeah. Yeah. And you now have my father with three bachelor's degrees and he's a doctoral, he's a doctoral candidate right now in school. My other uncle, oh, wow. a master's in public health and he is a medical doctor, an MD. Other uncle has a three masters in IT and he then, uh, my other uncle has a master's in Russian and he's a lawyer, has a JD and then three aunties all with college degrees as well coming from a welfare family in Compton yeah. and Watts in the 50s yeah. and 60s with two bedroom apartment moving that many times but they had strong leadership at That's home amazing, and my yeah. grandfather and strong arms for moving yeah they must have <laughs> and complaining yeah wow so they had those two I guess if you could imagine historically the mm-hmm. plight between the type of even if it wasn't my direct family but anybody who followed that and then in the offspring they'd create you can imagine the lessons that'd be taught and Oh, and the expectations, too. I guess you could say the expectations, but I feel if you're living your purpose, you don't have to worry about your expectations so much. But you have to know what your purpose is and live it, or at least feel that you experience it. And my sister ended up serving 17 years. She was a major, a JAG officer in the Army. She was deployed to Iraq for a year and then Saudi for a year. My brother was a medic when he was in the reserve while he was at USC, Southern Cal. And then he joined the uh, public health service and they go off naval ranks. So he was a lieutenant junior grade at Otisville Hospital running the healthcare system up there. Now he's a professor at USC in California and he's a veterans claims agent. He helps veterans get their disabilities oh, from. Nice. Yeah. Nice. So we have almost 65 or a little over 65 years of service nice. between our family. I was promoted to major last August, so I no longer have to call my sister ma'am, <laughs> which is pretty nice. And That's great. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And to just fast forward again, that was my childhood up through 18. And then, of course, I went to West Point. But uh, where I am now, I had a phone call about two and a half weeks ago from a soldier, a captain who were under the same command, mm-hmm. not the same unit, but same command. And she called and she said that she's getting deployed. Mm-hmm. And initially she wanted it. But then another position opened up for her in the Army. Called, it's an AGR mm-hmm. where you're in the reserve, but it's called active guard. You do something every day. Right. And it was a three-year tour, and she said it would be very beneficial for my family, and if I don't take it, they won't offer it again. So she asked me to switch. And I immediately, without skipping a beat, I said, yes. People don't know. I've been trying to deploy for, if anybody who I ever went to college with at West Point hears this, there were three other deployments I tried to get on. I even fibbed about the the quality of my shoulders to get through the medical because I've had this sitting in my stomach for a long time that I've been in the service for 14 and a half years, and I haven't deployed yet. So I thought almost verbatim through my head, I have not done my part to fight ISIS yet, whatever small yeah. role. And I told her, yes. So just like that, I'm sw- I swapped wow. and I had to pull out of the race as a result. Now, the neat part for me with this, <laughs> which I appreciate, and you could say it's a little masochistic since I don't have a wife and I don't have children. I don't know yet what it's like to have to leave them when you deploy. So what can I possibly give up that allows me to empathize with somebody giving up something <laughs> sacred? Two parts. We have... I just interviewed and got the green light for a job, and then I had to let him know I was getting deployed. A very, very, very good job. Very good job. And let me tell you, today when I told the boss, when he offered it to me, and then I shared this with him, this man's 32 years old. I had tears come down. He was an officer in the Air Force. He said, well, I have to tell you, it's very admirable what you are doing to swap out and help somebody and their family, another soldier. And I think you're going to excel over there like you seem to do in many things. And we all took this oath before any of these types of jobs. And what's happening there is way more important than this bleep. I, then I said, I got to tell you, I felt, I feel bad. And I was nervous and letting you know. And he said, Boyd, you don't 
have to worry about that if anybody understands, I do, because I went over there. We all took this oath before. Turns out there are three other West Pointers within that team, and then the boss's boss was classmates with my coach at West Point. So I felt that security in there, but still that side. So I gave that up, and I do these boxing clinics on Staten Island for drug addicts every Saturday, free ones at DeMarco's Boxing Gym. And we're picking up and picking up, and we just filed the paperwork to create our own nonprofit, me and Sal Toner as the founders called KOA Knockout Addiction. And that takes a lot of effort to get like a nonprofit and off the ground. 501c3 yeah. assured that, well, Sal, I told Sal, if you want to run with this, I'll, I'll ride. <laughs> but you got to drive, you have to carry the torch and move it because I don't have the time for this now. And he's 21 years old, way beyond his Whoa. years, way beyond yes. his years. And I'm excited. And, but I have to step off to the side from this. And that's another thing very important, but it makes me appreciate because it's that empathy, understanding what it's like when you have to give up something. Mm -hmm. And another part that was interesting is I remember my sister had told me, make sure on your dog tags you don't put Jewish for religion because if you're in that part of the world, God forbid. Oh, jeez. The little things that other people... That little tiny detail. And as I remember a week and a half ago, my dog tag fell out of my my OCP, my uniform, and I'd had that made earlier in the year when I thought I was going to be deploying early this past year. And it just hit me again, the reminder, the reality. And I'm so excited. <laughs> I finally get to do my part out there. 14 and a half Since the day years, I commissioned. That is, is amazing. And you're finally getting to go out. Right. So I was in a special unit in the Army. The Army has a program called the World Class Athlete Program. You go through OBC, which is the officer basic course, and I branched field artillery. So I went through four and a half months at Fort Sill. In Oklahoma, a place called Lawton. It's like a Texas Chainsaw Massacre town. I feel like the people are a little... They haven't evolved as much, it seems. Coming from New York. Yeah, the hills have eyes. Coming from New York. But that's how it is in a lot of military towns. Uh, And um, I went right into the program after the World Class Athlete Program. And your mission when you're in that program is to qualify for the U.S. Olympic team as a soldier. So your job year in and year out is to train and compete. And while I was on the program, I ended up earning a spot on the U.S. national team for three and a half years. And the accolades, I became the, I won the, I was the best in the Army, the All-Army Championship four years, and the Armed Forces three years. I was the world champion of all the militaries in the world in 2004. I beat Uzbekistan in the finals <laughs> of all countries now. Jeez, yeah. Oh, and I beat Uzbekistan. He was the under-19 world champion as an amateur. And I only had about seven fights outside of college. I really had no business winning that, but I did. And then I was named the USA Boxer of the Month for all amateurs in the country and the United States Olympic Committee Athlete of the Month runner-up behind Bodie Miller that month. And so if I ever, he has no idea, but I beat with him <laughs> if, I ever, if I ever find him. And I was ranked as high as number two in the U.S. as an amateur, and I placed fifth in the world, civilian worlds. Uh, USA, I was an alternate for the U.S. Olympic team in 08. I earned my MBA while I was boxing full-time. Uh, the Army's tuition assistant paid for it. I was on the board of directors for USA Boxing as the athlete rep, and briefly I was the on the United States Olympic Athlete Committee as a rep for representing combat sports, and did a lot of public speaking while I was doing that as well. And right after that program, I went into civilian world, went into corporate America, medical device sales for spinal implants. I did not have a good transition. I came from an environment. I'm 27, six going on 27, where they're advocating to wear your heart on your sleeve. You're in the military and you're fighting. And I'm a very affectionate person, and I love hugs. And you can't, you can't, that's the one thing I can't live without. And you can't walk into corporate America and hug corporate people. Oh, hello. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. I never shook it. Along the way, I, at the end of my junior year, I was home on leave. 
and I met a young woman, and she, I first saw her going by. She was she was in a wheelchair, and the first thing I thought was that nobody dances. I bet no one dances with her. Let me, I want to go dance with her. I didn't get to see what she looked like yet, and when I approached and I went to go step to her, the f- first line of defense, a woman's friends, I got cut <laughs> off, <laughs> and she said, where are you going? And I said, I want to dance with your friend. So I'm 20 going on 21. Yeah. She was just turned 19, and... We're both underage in a club. <laughs> so, but I showed my military ID. I didn't show a fake. I showed the military yeah, yeah. and they let me in. I don't know what she showed. So then, <laughs> but I guess I'm coming in a wheelchair. They're yeah. going to let her on in. Pretty girl in a wheelchair, yeah. let her on hey. in. Yeah. So I went, I said, I wanted to dance. And her friend said, you can't do that. And I said, why not? And she said, because you can. I said, can I ask, ask her myself? And I looked down at her and. I still looked up with a big smile, yeah. But I still hadn't seen her face closely, and I squatted down to start dancing, and I saw her face, and that's one of the most... I make I, I make sure to remember that moment every day so it stays fresh, and I never forget that because it helps remind me mm-hmm. this journey my life's been on and why I do it and why I've chosen it. We ended up, you know, my, my senior year at West Point, I was thinking I don't... Man, I'm getting, I'm supposed to be going to Germany to be stationed in, mm. at Wiesbaden and V-Corps and field artillery officer. I wasn't accepted in this program yet. I don't want to get into a relationship now. I'm going to another continent. And then the challenges with somebody being in a wheelchair, this mm. is tough. Yeah. And then things changed. And they decided to keep me at West Point to teach boxing after they made a special thing for me because I was accepted to compete at the, at the Army Championships. Yeah. And that year mm. you win the Army Championships, you qualify for the Armed Forces Championships. You win that, you go to the Olympic trials. So right. I had a route. I live a girl. I finished high school my last two years on White Plains in Westchester. She lived mm-hmm. in Portchester, nice and close. Mm-hmm. Uh, her name's Kristen Zaccanino, a nice Calabrian woman, Calabrese. And I started coming home, and I just fell real, very deep, deep in love with her. And that was a, that was uh, the summer of '03, and then I remember May of '04 when I was at Fort Sill and speaking with her, and that's when I kept hearing about stem cells on the news, and mm. and they, it was just like breaking yeah. the water of. The surface yeah, and getting people's yeah. attention, but no one, even MDs, American MDs, didn't really know much. Yeah. So I would ask her mother, who was in contact with a doctor named Hinderer and in Detroit at a hospital there, and I was getting answers that were delayed or blowing me off. Kind of, oh, she didn't understand, and that's I'm, mm-hmm. I don't have this learned helplessness to me that I, yeah. I'm finding many of us in existence have. It's not how I was raised, and especially not how I was trained where I went to school. So I was like, I need to learn what I don't know so that physicians will open up to me and I'll learn what, mm. right, what correct questions to ask. So I've dedicated thousands of hours of my life to Google and Wikipedia and clinicaltrials.gov, <laughs> wow. ed- educating myself on cellular medicine as it relates to the central nervous system, specifically the spinal cord on stem cells, on stem cell medicine, on regenerative medicine. Uh, I was invited. I got to the point where they invited me to speak at a World Stem Cell Conference in Beijing in 08. I frequently am asked, where did you go to med school? Are you a neurologist? And I say, well, if we talk about other stuff, you're going to see a a marketable decline. If we stick (laughs) on this, this is where I'll be able to hold my own. And it's interesting. I usually educate doctors on this because unless you have a reason to know, and many of them don't know, I speak in depth, in great depth about stem cells at a very high scientific level. I've had to learn it. Because that was part of my promise. I said, I called her. I'll never forget. I said, I'm not going to give up. For the rest, I promise you, for the rest of my life, I'm never going to give up on helping you walk. And I get emotional when I think about this because I've gone through a great deal of sacrifice and hurt, hurting people I love, hurting people who love me, putting myself in straits where employment became difficult because it interfered with my promise, Mm. where even the military took a a step back to an extent if it interfered with that promise. 
And I ended up hurting Kristen very much along the way. However, present moment, we're maybe two months away from this clinical trial getting FDA approval. And part of my promise to help raise money when I learned they didn't they needed FDA approval and funding for it, decided I'm going to, after being two years away from boxing and, and uh, four shoulder surgeries, I said, I'm going to go pro and I'm, I'm going to bring awareness. I'm going to be have a platform. And I stick out in the sport of boxing so as, as it was in the amateurs because I was successful as the common function, common denominator rather. The same thing, if I can do this in the ring here, it will apply. Yeah. And it did. And then, like we learned in West Point, you lead by example, lead from the front. I was working for Johnson & Johnson back in medical device sales. I stopped the hugs. I got it going. <laughs> and... Well, I didn't stop the hugs, but I waited until they were comfortable enough. And then I asked. Yes, and you like not, not walking yeah, right and in. Then like, I did, and I'm like, you don't know how long I was waiting to give you that. became essential. Yeah, there you go. Like, essential. Yeah. Nice. I, uh, my last year there, I got rep of the year um, on my whole uh, division. It was, I was very proud because I'm boxing full-time and everything else at the same time. Oh, oh wow. Okay. Yeah, with everything at the same time. But I all knew if I decided to donate everything that I earn, my whole purse, essentially boxing for free. Mm-hmm. It becomes a charity. Mm-hmm. And nobody can ever give me a hard time when I ask them, come out of your pocket at least a dollar. Yeah. And it's not just the risking the life in the ring here. It's the hundreds of hours in training to get ready for today. And then I found a coach and I found a strength trainer, my, one of my best friends, Steve Feinberg, and coach Steve, Simon Bakinde and coach Bernie Lenahan. And they didn't take a penny out of the purse either. Yeah. And they put all their time. My first purse was $1,500. Along the process, we created our own nonprofit team, Fight to Walk. We've raised over $400,000 from a vision and believing and willing to suffer and sacrifice and holding on to my space. Yeah. Along the route, HBO Real Sports covered our story with Brian Gubble. It was mm-hmm. pretty neat. Yahoo did. Sports Illustrated had me in their journal. Wall Street Journal covered it. So in their magazine, Sports Illustrated, rather than Journal. Wall Street Journal covered it. Huffington Post covered it. The Army Reserve made a video on my story. It's on YouTube. It's 7 minutes, 11 seconds. It won the Department of Defense Video of the Year in 2015. And, It'll be linked in the show notes. And then at the thumbnail is Dr. Wai Zhang. That's the doctor leading the study, and he's got gray beard. And he was one of Christopher Reeve's advisors. So I become very become very close with uh, Deborah Morrissey, who's Dana Reeves' sister, and she invited me over to her home yesterday for supper. She had a gathering. I didn't know Christopher's son was going to be there, Will Reeve, and he, I'm on training him not next week, but the week after next week. Yeah, next right, week right, at right. Mendez, he's going to come. But that I, I almost started crying twice when we were just hanging out because how surreal this this moment was in my life that it brought me here because I followed what's in my heart with divine love up to this moment. So along that route. I was asked to go up to uh, the state capitol one time because there used to be a bill that was a bill that was passed. It was a 5% surcharge on all moving yeah, violations. Right. I went to spinal cord research and under it was put in by Pataki in 98. And then when we hit our recession, Patterson decided we got to fasten the belts and hold on to it. Mind you, it had a cap. It was 5% and or a certain number. So any number over that, that went to the state. So we created... Right. Over those nine years it was in existence, yeah. I think 70-something million for spinal cord research, 150 million for the state. Wow. So they asked me to go on up and speak to try to get that back because when we came out of our recession, if you consider that we've come out of it, they're still holding on to it. And it's me with the leading physicians, neurologists, uh, physiatrists in, in uh, New York. And we're sitting at this table and we're speaking to state senators and special interest group members. 
And I'm seeing all these physicians pleading. And this is the why, because when we had this money, we were able to do this research. And here's an example of someone that benefited and they got back to work. That was taxpayer yeah. dollars. And everybody's going around saying this. And when they got to me, I, I, I look at the guys. I, got, I said, listen, sir, I got to tell you. He's about my age. I, I got to tell you something. I'm a little bit different than everybody here. I'm going to speak differently. And I'm coming at you as a, as a champion boxer. Are you out of your mind? There was a bill passed for this specific reason and no other reason. Now, I understand everybody had to tighten their belts when we were in the recession. We're essentially agreed upon that we've moved out of that state and you're still keeping it. And I don't get I said, this is the mafia. I said, what would you do if you put money away every month for your kid for college? And then when they're ready for college, the bank says they're going to keep it. What would you do? This, and I'm watching around and seeing these bright minds here pleading for money that was always theirs. Are you out of your mind? And then my father was, and he started apologizing. Don't worry, my son, he's a field. Owner. I said, no, Pop, you have to, I'm very well aware of what I'm saying now. And I have intention with what I'm saying here. I said, I, I went to West Point. We live off of honor and integrity. If you looked at me here and said, you don't have to plead for it back, but just know you're not getting it back. I would take that better than you making these grown men, these leaders sitting here and then pleading for something that was never yours. And you taking your little notes on your pad and going to report it back and someone gets to make a decision. I said, this is a bunch of crap. What were their faces? He was kind of like giggle, smile because he's around my, I, I was in my early thirties then. So he kind of, or maybe it was in his late twenties. And the doctors started laughing, and I think they appreciated that they had someone like me there to say this. I'm sure they did. Yeah, like, it's not going directly to you, so you get to say whatever you whatever want. Whatever I want. Like, You're right. Yeah, well, and I'm, I mean, like, knowing scientists and, and grants and all that process just through members of my own family, it's like... They, you're right. They can't talk like that and they can't advocate for themselves like that. So to right. have you there doing that for them is really special. Thank you. And then Dr. Young invited me. Uh, two summers ago, we went to D.C. and we testified. This was to put pressure so the FDA can give its approval for this. And there were special interest group members and congressional members there. And I remember when they started grilling Dr. Young, not in a, an aggressive way, but wanting to, I guess I shouldn't use the word grill, questioning. And I'm watching and I'm listening to this man who Time Magazine in 2002 named America's Best in Spinal Cord Research. So I'm listening to him have to defend slash explain yeah. himself mm -hmm. to children. For me, if you're in your 20s still or whatever, your yeah. child. Who don't understand a damn word he's saying because it's all high level medical jargon. And then they're going to go and report that to people that won't understand a word they're hearing. And then they're going to make decisions if a trial is going to come along so people can walk, walk the basics of life, walk, like hold your child standing up. Yeah. Walk, move your arms to hold your child. They weren't trying to figure out whether we should trust this person. They were like taking the information out to be like, all right, we're going to drop this down on a notebook and we're going to hand it to someone else. And that person isn't going to trust it. They should be thinking about is this person someone we should trust? Yes. Then what do we need to do? Tell absolutely us. Right. And it said they were trying to grab information out of him. Well, and, and just to kind of, you know, not to You're derail right. too far, but I mean, this just reminds me of talking to Congressman Donovan about his, you know, sometimes he likes the science. Sometimes he likes what's in his heart. Sometimes he likes something else. It's like when you've got the experts there and the science is there, why aren't you paying attention to it? If I see someone who's who's done hundreds of thousands of hours of research, my first question is, please distill that down into 10 sentences for me. <laughs> it's, what do you need to keep researching? Because yeah. you already put in that time. What can I help you do so you can keep doing more of that? With the tax bill, like a, a big thing now is that the graduate students are going to have to declare their, their tuition as income when before it was granted to them. 
the quality of research is going to suffer. The number of people who can work in a lab is going to suffer. Um, and we're not going to have that expertise. And it's just you know what I want? I want a bill to be passed where on everyone's tax return, they get to choose how much of the return they want to donate to any incurable condition that has to be tried in an academic environment. Because if you go through a pharmaceutical company, they have predetermined outcomes. They'd like to kind of stack the yeah, deck. Yeah. Academia, they, they trial every variable for the sole purpose of going to human clinical trials. Now, of course, people are going to say it's going to be corrupt. Who's going to manage the budget? Well, let's first just work on the idea of passing yeah. a bill. So people, and then they can write that off for their next year's taxes. What if it could be baldness, anything, but putting it back in our hands. So spinal cord injury, uh, there are 300,000 Americans roughly that are living with, uh, due, with a traumatic spinal cord injury. Costs our government $9.7 billion a year of taxpayer dollars. $9.7 billion to care for the people who are paralyzed. Nothing for the yeah. research. So the $9.7 billion is the single greatest expenditure for any medical condition our country pays every year from taxpayer dollars. So you know. For three, only 300, only relatively 300,000 people. So I wonder what the U.S. would say the uproar. 300,000 people are costing $9.7 billion, where if maybe for one year you invested that in R&D. Here's yeah. a challenge. When you have a neurological condition and it's a neurological deficit, you usually, if it's anywhere from your L2 up, uh, lumbar 2 up, and your L2 would be right where your spinal cord ends, so you have these nerves coming on out. L1, L2, mostly L1 it ends, some L2. You have these nerves called caudoquinus sprouting on out. That means horse's tail. So if there, you have a neurological condition there, you lose your bladder and bowel function usually, yeah. usually, or, or it's hindered. So there's this drug called ditropan you take. You take this every day. It shrinks up the distal aspect of your urethra, distal meaning the far end. Where your bladder empties in your urethra, it, shrink, it shrinks it up. Yeah, and it controls that. So that you can, you can measure every how many hours you want to help catheterize someone and void them. You have to take that drug every day for the rest of your life, that pill or two pills, depending on how many milligrams you need. Otherwise, you're going to urinate on yourself randomly because you can't control it. That company, I bet they're worth trillions of dollars, exaggerating at least billions. Yeah. They don't want bladder function to be restored. Why no, would they? Don't they? Want and I can understand. They want that pill every day. You know, this clinical trial that uh, it's going to be taking place in Mount Sinai in Manhattan at University of Newark Hospital. Mm -hmm. And I forget the other one. And then the rehab is going to be Long Island Jewish at Kessler, I believe, in another location. They use umbilical cord cells donated after, after babies are born. Their perfect match is six out of six. Uh, HLAs, human leukocyte antigens. So there's, I think it's a 95% chance they won't be rejected. Mm -hmm. And they inject them right into your spinal cord, right where the injury is. And you have, there's an imagery system called the diffuser, diffusion tensor imagery system. The gray matter glows, the white doesn't. The gray mm -hmm. matter has all the axons. Mm -hmm. So what it looks like on the, it's really easy to read. Yeah. You see like a glowing string and then it just cuts off. Right. And what people don't recognize with nerves, nerves are like muscles. It's Wolf's Law. You, you, you don't use them, you lose them. So in the acute phase of an injury, it's just that little link on the train track that's missing. But as it progresses and gets to a year or post, the whole chain dies. So it's not just there that you have to fix. They have to grow, and they grow at best at a millimeter a day. And then they have to innervate the muscles that they're growing. They can grow the whole length. Right. And it stinks for if you happen to break your neck and you're seven feet tall, it's going to take a long time to get down. So it's conditional to an extent at least the length of time for it to be. And then they have to ascend and descend. Ascending pathways are for sensory. You touch my leg, it travels up. Mm -hmm. Descending are for, for movement. And one may grow back and one may not. So the physical therapy aspect of it is critical. It's yeah. paramount to any success there. So when they inject them in, the cells themselves do not turn into new neurons, the umbilical cord cells. What they do is 
where that missing link was, where the injury was, first you get a matrix of cells around called, they're made of glial cells, and they use the term glial scar, but it's not a scar, like when I cut my epithelial sites, or my sites mean cells, it's not a scar when it cuts my, as you cut my skin, that matrix. It's almost like a dam going around because what happens when you have a spinal cord injury, the blood-brain barrier breaks. Yep. And then infection can travel to the central nervous system. So immediately the body sends these things called macrophages and phagocytes and they come on down and they debride the area and then the glial cells form this buffer around. And it's always self-proliferating. So it's refreshing itself on a constant basis. There's some drugs now that block a certain protein that helps it break down and they've had your own functional axons growing through. So it's cool. amazing. That's so so cool. with this umbilical cord cells, they create a bridge across so it's a safe passageway they have auto-inflammatory properties and they help secrete enzymes that are proteins that help break down the glial scar and the best part is it showed from a year to two years or one and a half to two years they disappear your body doesn't need them anymore they let somebody else's cells don't stay in your body the doctor completed this trial it was published in an american medical journal named cell transplantation i have it on my phone the May 2016 version, and when it gets published in an American Medical Journal, that means a bunch of American medical doctors reviewed it and couldn't dispute it, so they published it. And some journals are better than others. This is a pretty good one. And they put in the abstract, it says, 15 out of 20 patients paralyzed an average of seven years can now walk at least 10 meters with a walker. 12 out of 20 had their bladder and bowel returned. One of them's on a cane, he even told me. You have to be injured at least a year. One of the people was injured for 14 or 19 years. One person was 58 years old and they're getting these results. It's as if we have the winning lottery tickets, but not a dollar to buy the damn ticket. And people think like, oh, no, no, the national debate right now is pretty depressing. It's like things are lost. Well, this industry isn't coming back. This old way of doing things isn't coming back. And there are smart people out there who are going to say, we can we can take something that you thought never was coming back and we can bring it back. Mm -hmm. And all you need to do is drop 0.05% of like a state or national budget just into trying to research and study it. And then maybe we can fix it. And it's not even a maybe, it's that you keep doing it. It is doable. You're right. And when we I and we don't let them do it. <laughs> You're right. We don't give them that. And, reg and bureaucracy and regulations. And they need to be there. I do agree. Sometimes I think they're a little too stringent on letting things at least go into a phase one, which is a test for safety. When I was when I spoke at the World Stem Cell Conference in Beijing in 09, the International Association, of, it was the second annual International Association of Neurorestoratology. And I ended it by saying, what gets me most mad in my own country is that today if a rat breaks its neck, it has a better chance of walking again than I do. And I remember one of the physicians, she's at Mount Sinai. I remember her name. I'm not going to say it, though. And she, I saw her furious roll her eyes and get up and walk out when I said it. Now, I understand why it has to be there. But when I went to this, and since in other countries they're allowed to treat with stem cells, they had PhDs and they had MDs. And a lot of them were showing videos of what they were doing treating. And every time it would be like someone's been paralyzed for maybe 10 years and a group of five, the same five people had the same treatment and now they're all able to. And I'd walk to this same doc physician and I'd say, well, what do you think about this? And say, oh, it wasn't a controlled experiment. Who's to say it wasn't going to happen anyway? And I'm thinking to myself, you know, at 10 years, if there's an intervention at 10 years for a spinal cord injury and then something happens, it's because of the intervention, yeah. Yeah. especially yeah. if five <laughs> people do it. And I started noticing the same paradigm taking place. They're here to try to regenerate, but everyone's only caring about the animal data or they have their, like, we made another rat walk. We had another pat you on the butt. Good game. 
or I'm coming here with my asshole hat on because my job here is to disprove everyone here instead of everybody trying to get together around one thing, put your damn eagles to the side <laughs> because these are human beings, some of them that can only move their eyes and their mouth. Yeah. And let's get behind at least one thing to see if it works so we stop going in circles of nothing. Why people are dying. You know, when you can't move, you can't move. If I leave you, when you can't move, if I leave you alone and nobody comes, you die. I don't understand why that is not the most important condition right now to find a cure for. You're completely dependent. And then I remember Kristen had called me once and this was when they made some cuts, I think two years ago to Medicaid, maybe it was part B, where they offer for health home caregivers, uh, $13.50 an hour, which first... For thirteen fifty no. an hour, let me try to find somebody that can care for someone who can't move. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I get it. And they were dropping it down to ten fifty an hour. And I remember she used to say that she would pay on top of the thirteen fifty hour to get somebody from her own pocket. She has her own business. Not everybody has that ten fifty an hour to care. Now I don't know what the solution is. I don't see the numbers. One of the big issues I have are when people come in who are running for office. I've never been in the system, and they outwardly say, "I'm going to do this, this, this. This is what should be." And I think, how do you know this? If you haven't had the data, the intel, how do you know what you may think you want to do? And that's why a lot of politicians, I believe, or people running for office are called liars. Because even if their best intentions are out there, there's going to be someone they hurt with their decision. Mm, yeah. And so that is so when they speak and they say, well, this is my plan for the healthcare, but how the hell could you know what's reasonably going to work from the outside? You can speak operational level, mm -hmm. but you don't know what the dollars and cents are going to where. Only inside the system gets that. So when I hear these things and you capture people's imaginations and things can sound great, but we don't have time to hope that what you're saying may actually be what's going to be. Mm -hmm. But that keeps getting preached. And I don't understand this. How can you have a health care? How can you have a tax? How can you have any of this? When you're outside, it's like you yeah. saying right now, you have a health a tax bill for the whole U.S. So where'd you get your data from? I don't know, but this is how it's going to work. <laughs> we'll get other people later on who'll figure out what I want to do for yeah. me. It's like there are people waiting in the wings right now who are waiting just for the go ahead, who already have figured out a lot of what we need to do. But, but even when they have the data and they have the numbers and to the tax bill, they come out and say, we don't think they're right. Theme, you want to have a theme of, you know, helping this person versus this person, a theme of morality, a theme of whatever narrative you as politician want to run on. I assure you, helping people who are trapped in their bodies will fit somewhere in that damn narrative. Absolutely right. <laughs> yeah. And if it doesn't, then what the f are we doing? Absolutely right. <laughs> if it doesn't, then there's something seriously wrong with the narrative. Yeah. And and let's let's be fair. A lot of, a lot of politicians don't have the time to even get the base level of research and data that is available publicly. Mm -hmm. They get other people who will tell them that for them. And also, it's because a lot of medical research is something that it's always in percentages. It lives in numbers until you see all of a sudden people can walk. That's when they will go, oh, the money was worth it. You know, the frustrating part is I've seen the video. Dr. Young showed me them walking mm -hmm. on maybe four different people. And he showed me their MRIs. And I said to him, please, I'm begging you, just release this to the media in the U.S. Mm, so they can yeah. see. But here's the challenge. We have an arrogance to our country where unless we do it here, mm -hmm. we don't believe it. Mm -hmm. And there's a reason to have that to an extent. I agree. Especially stuff coming out of China. I agree. So he said, if I release the tapes and show these and it wasn't done here in the U.S., 
it's going to, it'll probably, da- the whole study may get damaged and thrown out and somebody will find something to say, discredit or disprove it, even though the depositions didn't, could, said it was legit. So knowing this, it drives me crazy. Yeah. And I've shown it on my phone to friends. And I remember one time, actually, I didn't realize I posted it on Facebook and his office was, he's got to take this down. We, we can't have this showing yet. But I've seen easily, and I've shown to people, I used to, when I used to see random people in their chairs, I'd go over to them and, and I'd say, well, did you break your neck or back? And they'd look at me crazy. And I'd start conversation. I'd say, look, you got to see this. And i show them my phone. i said, this is coming very soon. This yeah. is, it's not me, believe my issue. I have a physician's. I just, I don't understand why we've, we haven't, we've had enough experience in this country, in this existence of things that were not possible becoming possible that mm. people can still speak factually yeah. when it comes to medicine, as opposed to saying, well, right now I don't know about, or I don't know of, yeah. but for you to speak, I remember Kristen told me, uh, she's very, her Catholic faith is very strong. And she's, her mama said that when the doctor said your daughter's never going to walk again, her mama said, after your name, it says MD, not G-O-D. And that was one of the best. <laughs> good, good answer. Right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, you know, I loved whenever I used to come home on leave when I was on active duty. Uh, I would stay, I would come and stay at Kristen's. And it was big, big Italian family. Calabrese, learning the traditions. I remember the first look they gave me when I said calamari instead of galamad. <laughs> Wait, I've been saying it wrong my I, whole life. Like I offended everybody in existence. Um, I used to dress up, but they had a, they probably had like they probably spent hundreds of bucks on their Santa Claus outfit. And I'm coming home on leave. My father's Catholic, my mother's Jewish. I'm raised yeah. Jewish, uh, bar mitzvah and everything. And I'm coming home, and they're like, "Boy, could you?" They know I'm like a jolly person, so yeah. can you put on uh, this the outfit for the kids? Like, are you guys crazy? This was the most elaborate. Had everything. They must have spent hundreds and hundreds. Oh, man. So I come down, I put them on my lap. I'm sounding like Santa Claus. All her, her uncles and aunties and brothers are literally loving it. And then I, when we're done, I said, I'm never doing this again. You guys are crazy. Next year, next Christmas. Because they know I'm soft when it comes to this stuff. And they looked at me. As soon as, no. as, soon as I went in their home, yeah, they say, guys, no, you know, I'm not doing this. Don't ask me. I'm not putting that out, that outfit on again. Find someone else to be oh Santa. And guess who ended no. up putting on the outfit and being soft? Because I, I melt That's when funny. it comes to children. So. That's so funny. I had to do I it. Like and I love don't, Christmas time. Don't ask me because I'll say yes again. Yeah, I know. That's exactly what it is. No. You know what makes me sad? I don't know why we have to wait till December. To behave like the best versions of ourselves. <laughs> yeah. And it and seems to dissipate quickly too. So fast. It's like after it's like once everyone gets drunk for New Year's, it's like they forget. It's done it. Yeah. <laughs> then the, resu- the resolution. I feel like their resolution is I promise for the rest of this year I'm going to be an asshole again. And then they, they kind of turn into it. I think also yeah. everyone's on their best behavior because they're happy because they know they're getting gifts soon. So I think that's that may be what it is. So, boy, I mean, one of the things that, that, we're kind of curious about is the congressional race to date and your experience in it. I mean, what was it like, you know, doing that and, you know, working with different people and kind of uh, getting the word out and the most distasteful aspect of it to me was how it hurt my nonprofit work. Really? Yeah, absolutely. The stuff that I've been doing for years and years and years and years now that that's really been my, my main job. Yeah. Mm-hmm charity and nonprofit and helping share this planet and have people feel loved and appreciated. The things that I normally did now that I'm running for office and they say we can't look like we're being partisan and I'm saying, guys, every time I've come here, I've come as a WBC boxing champion. Mm -hmm. I don't understand this so much. Ready to hear the things that they tried to block me. 
I spoke on Staten Island at the Celebrate Hope Recovery Programs event they had. And I'm doing these things since March with these free boxing clinics. And now I go to this a residential drug rehabilitation center on Staten Island named Program, rather, it's a live-in named uh, Camelot. And that's a step before jail. And I've taken them, the boys out of the house and had events for them to do, taking the boxing clinics. I lead group session there one Tuesday a month. And now I'm hearing they're concerned about me speaking. And I was right out. And you know what happens is I was so closely after when I think President Trump with the scouts and yeah. said his thing. Right. And then I, you know, I'm an Eagle Scout. I worked at a Boy Scout camp called Aquahunga upstate. Mm-hmm. And on 10 Mile River, I used to camp. I grew up camping on Staten Island, camp pouch and the ghostaries and whatever. <laughs> and they asked me to be, they had their 90th reunion. They asked me to be a speaker. They looked at me as a quote unquote celebrity alum and asked me to come speak. And then I get another email after that saying, you're not allowed to speak, you're running for office. And then I sent not a not, not so nice email back because yeah. that is very much home and sacred to me. And you didn't even ask what I'm going to speak about. Yeah. It's just and, like the mere presence. That's, right. That's interesting. So I think that's I, not uh, something people think of very much. So I go to St. Albans nurse, VA f- nursing facility for veterans in Queens with the Vander Holyfield. I set it up. I got there first and they were happy to see me. Then about five minutes passed and a woman comes out and she said, I need to speak to you in the room. And I had a feeling what it was. She said, boy, we just heard that. We found out you're running for office and you can't be here. We can't look. We're a federal. And I said, I looked at the lady and I said, ma'am, Please do me a favor and don't try to bring any security here because you're going to be embarrassed. I'm a veteran. I have every right to be in a veteran facility that any veteran does. Do you understand how silly it is that you're asking me to leave a VA facility just because I'm running for office? If I This is a medical facility. If I hurt myself in the parking lot, are you not going to give me care because I'm running for office? And then she said, she, I saw the, the realization come over and she goes, all right, but you have to sit right here then until I find out if it's good. And I said, no, I don't have to sit right here. I can go anywhere here that any veteran can. And then we had a, a captain come in uniform to film it because public affairs. And then she said, well, he can't be here. Not a lot of filming and clear. And I said, ma'am, if you don't want him to film, that's one thing. He has every right to be here. And then she said the same, same, I gave the same rhetoric. And then she said, well, he has to sit right here. And then I, and so that's another example. Wow. The, the ugliest one. The ugliest. So early in the summer, I was put in touch with the chief of neonatology at Staten Island University Hospital. And my whole conversation with him was, what are you seeing with mothers coming in, giving birth while they were addicted to drugs, uh, heroin especially? And he laid it all out to me. And I think that's another thing that the average person doesn't think of when they think of the opiate epidemic. And then my buddy, Austin Trout, is, he had beat Miguel Cotto before. I lost him in the Olympic trials in 2004. And then he was coming back to fight at the Barclays Center for a world title shot again. So his promoter called me and said, I know what you did with the Vander. The other day we went to Sloan Kettering first to visit room to room and for the children's hospital part of it. And then this. And he said, do you think you can do this for Austin? So I was like, this is great. I can call up Staten Island University Hospital, get him there. He comes. The media is going to come. It's going to bring attention to this. I call up the doctor. He's ecstatic about it. Gets back to me a few days later. He brought it over to the PR person, and he said that that person's director said, you can't come. It's a political issue uh, in an election year. And I responded, I, I'm a little confused here. Uh, this Maybe there's a there's some sort of a breakdown in communication. This is a professional world cha- former world champion wanting to come and do community service and bring attention to something here. I'm not going to be speaking. And me being there, I'm a boxing WBC champion. Like he used to be a world champion. I was the US WBC junior middleweight champion. I don't understand. Please report this back. So the doctor said, okay. 
And I said to him, you can't stop somebody from doing community service. Mm -hmm. And then he got back to me a week later and he said, the director said the same thing. It's a dead issue. So I responded and I just, I said, if Mike Tyson wanted to call it up and said he wanted to come and visit, would you say no? And I didn't get a response back. And the WBC Cares for Humanity, which is their 501c3 side, I spoke to my friend who's the president and she sent a thing and showed pictures of all fighters that go to visit hospitals and whatever. And they still said no dice. That was the ugliest one. We're Staten Island where I'm running yeah. at the time. And the single greatest issue, it seems, because it's killing people. And I keep saying, when, when you talk about death, it doesn't matter what tax break you're hoping for, what college you want to go to, what nanny you hope you get, how much anything, what job, what vacation, nothing. You're dead. You're dead. It's the end. It's the over. And now a mother has a child who no longer exists or a child has a parent that's gone. It's death. And why would that be more important? Because you're chicken shit. That's why. Like, what the hell? Like, because if a sitting politician wanted to do that, mm. that wouldn't happen. You're right. It's about the candidate. It's disgusting. And that's when you're supposed to be judged off of not how much money you raise, what you're doing to make a difference and affect change in the lives of human beings that you're trying to represent. Because once upon a time, when this whole thing came about of how our government and a Congress, it was us hanging out somewhere. And you guys said, who's the best speaker here? You are. All right, Joe, not your honorable, not your whatever. Go here, come fight for us and get your ass back home and live with us. Yeah, that was it. Not these layers, not this crap. The thing that it was supposed to be, well, why do we want Joe? Because he seems to be that know the people in the community, wants to fight for them, cares about issues, sacrifices himself, his worth, his everything, not the business. It seems like capitalism is the greatest benefit and it could be one of the greatest curses at the same time. We can't make everything a business. Yeah. Yeah, especially something we, so that comes we from the heart not. that's selfish. So that's, well, it's, it's that thing of you go to the hospital and you're a customer, you're not a patient. I'm sorry, no, I'm a patient. Like... We're keeping things that should be coming from the heart as if it's inherently negative. Life is political. Everything we do is political. Get over it and do good. I agree with you. That's, it's, it's, it's ass backwards thinking if it followed that line. I've had a couple of people reach out to me and say, you know, I want to support you. I want to whatever. And maybe they saw that at least at the first quarter I raised more than anybody else or they saw the video. And when they call, the first thing I say is, well, what do you know about me? And I'll either get, well, you're against the opioids or you're a Democrat and you raised more or you went to military and want. And I said to them, I also said, this guy's all because somebody's a Democrat and you like Democrats doesn't mean that they're a good person for office. And mm. all because someone's a Republican and you may despise Republicans doesn't mean that they're a bad person for office. Why? The question, why? Where are we willing to meet? How can we make it work? Imagine that was always the question where you have your belief, I have mine. How do we make it work? How do we make it work so it's not all or nothing? Mm -hmm. And you go in that route. How? The real life, every day, how do we make it work so that people can eat? How do we make it work so that we can provide the best health care? How do we make it work so to provide? Because it's you're not the only person that lives in this existence. And everyone else in here is not like you. How do we make it work? I get disgusted when I think you put individuals with a similar thought process in one room together and then the same in another room. And my hands are open right now, but they become fists. And when they leave the room, that's what they are, fists. And imagine two fists approaching each other, balled up. And at the very last second before they touch, they're supposed to open up and integrate. Yeah. That's like the Democrats and the Republicans. That is absurd. And 
Money is the reason, I believe, why we operate in the definition of insanity when it comes to politics. Oh, absolutely. It does not work. Yeah. And it's gotten worse since Citizens United. And, and it's you're right. And that's the challenge. And we don't want to make an operational level change to this because it's going to hurt pockets. And that's what it is. And that's why I said in my video, I'm tired of people being afraid to get fired. Do you not have anything else you can do in this world? Are you doing this for the paycheck? Are you doing it for the, the power? What is your motive? I told my team this, two members on the team, they look like I, like I was crazy. Said, Guys, if we win this thing, there is zero celebration. And they said, why? Like, no part. And they said, why? What, what, maybe we can do just a little thing. I'm like, well, if you want to do a little thing, go do a little thing. What the hell am I celebrating where no matter how good my intentions are, I'm going to hurt somebody's life with decision I make? What the hell am I celebrating? It's a responsibility. Absolutely. A responsive freaking ability. I lived my entire life doing this. Since five years old as a Cub Scout, and now that I'm an adult and who I am is ready, so I'm supposed to display it on my chest, I'm supposed to operate different to what my internal steel is. And it seems like a lot of people want to get into that kind of a position. And it's really weird that we see so many people who are clearly not qualified to even help some people and... We know that they're going to hurt more than they help. It's to the best of your ability, you'll try not to hurt. It's the yeah. honesty in it. And I remember I spoke to my mama about this, and she had said, some people want to hear the lie because it gives them hope. I have a very hard time with that. Very, 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 very hard time with that. I have a hard time with deflecting. I have a hard time with not answering exactly how I feel about something and being honest. I guess because I'm not afraid to take it on the chin coming back. Mm. Uh, I was with Hilltop Public Solutions, and uh, the way I was branded is, is highly inaccurate. And after reading, yeah, I'm, lab I'm branded as a recovering drug addict. And sometimes they mention uh, on a cursory, on the cursory that I major in the Army Reserve. So uh, the challenge I had with prescription medication mm -hmm. came to the point where when the moment I started realizing that I couldn't sleep without it for years, trying to go to bed without taking one, mm -hmm. there was no taking it during the day. There was no scrounging. There was no scratching. There was no looking cracked out. There was none of this. It did impact my life significantly because as I state, you don't have REM sleep when you actually sleep on it. So you feel like you're asleep. And the reason I started is because my legs would not stop shaking. This restless leg syndrome crap on the commercials is real. Mm. It happens. It's not this made up thing by the pharmacy. Why it's there may be made up according to them, but it stopped. So it would relax my legs so I could sleep. And you deprive somebody of food, fluids, or sleep, the nicest person will finally lose it. And I used to go running in the middle of the night to try to tire my legs out, which helped me when I was training for boxing, but it would make it tough. I would, when I'd wake up in the morning, I would show up late to work because when I'd wake up, I was in a coma and I'd have to go back to sleep, always trying to find ways then during the day to take a nap if I could. But it wasn't during the day that I would take any of that stuff. And I would say it would come down if I just had took one half of one called Tramadol, it's a synthetic opiate, that would calm me down. I would switch to, sometimes I would try Ambien to see sometimes NyQuil, just to re relax my darn legs. It didn't even give me a feeling anymore. I hate it. I started getting nauseous the idea of putting it in my mouth. 
when I finally decided I had enough of this because it just kept going on for years, off and on, off and on. I'd beat it, I'd beat it, but then I'd really get hurt again. And then I'd say, I'm training and I'm competing as a professional athlete and I'm injured and I need to try to get through this somehow. So I used it as a crutch. And I and I would think I was, you know, I've been off of it for so long that now my body's not going to, my body's memory was incredible. But the reason, the way I was able to get off was one day I heard someone reference it as saying, when you have an addiction, you're a servant. And that word resonated with me strongly. Great power that I'm not a servant to a damn thing. I'm my father's son. I'm a West Point grad. I'm not a servant. And that was the moment I, I stopped. And I was proud because... I've taken intermittently when I had, I get, I get kidney stones. I had a stent in me for 34 days. And when I went through however many were in there, I had no need or desire. So I think it was also a mental thing. That part hit in the competitiveness. I know not everyone's able to do this. Mm-hmm. The biggest challenge I'm seeing on the island when I'm with, these, with a group of young boys and I talk to them is that when they get out of the rehab program or out of jail, mm-hmm. then what? So they don't fall back in the same environment. And they're pleading for help with this. And I'm thinking, you know, you're a criminal in our law's eyes because of this, because you're sick with yeah. this and you're asking for help. You're a criminal. Yeah, I don't know if you know. Uh, you remember the D.A.R.E. program for D.A.R.E. role yeah. models? I was a D.A.R.E. role model. We go to, In high school, we go to fifth graders and talk and tell them kids an alternative. Don't do drugs. Don't drink. Don't whatever. And the federal budget just cut funding for D.A.R.E. Yet we just publicly Jeez. said it's, an, yeah. it's a public health issue. <laughs> and let's spend more money on ads and spend more money on locking people up. But that's a big issue we have with our country. We're in immediate gratification. We treat symptoms because that's also a capitalistic yeah. environment. When you treat the symptom, you get a re- returning customer because it's going to wear off whatever mm-hmm. you're treating them with or they become dependent on what you're treating them with. So that's another income. When you invest in the human, and I think in the movie Patch Adams often with Robin Williams, you treat a disease, you win or lose, you treat a person, you always win. Yeah, mm-hmm. And it's the shift there. That's why I host these free boxing clinics and I've had members taking it saying they haven't used or it's been extremely more intermittent now because they want to come back and they feel guilty coming back and they're feeling loved. And I get to give them all hugs <laughs> and be that part. And I, and I love it. You know, I volunteer at Teddy Atlas's Cops and Kids in Park Hill. Mm-hmm. I try to get – I haven't been there for a few Mondays, but I, I try to get there almost every Monday. And it's in the, it's in the inner city there. It's when I'm used to being around and helping. I, I travel. I've traveled to many, many, many schools over the last years for free. The bad schools, you're going with the metal detector and whatever, and it, it's tough. Uh, no light color skin people in there, and I walk on in, but I get to show a different part of my personality. And I'm betting right now you're seeing a little part of it come out as I'm <laughs> getting in that mode. The the WBC champion, West Point grad, yep. major in the army comes on out, and uh, I take a lot of pride doing that over there on the island. I remember I went down to, to about a month ago, I went down to Puerto Rico and volunteered for a few days with my friend's uh, staff sergeant, Amy Hernandez. Mm-hmm. She's was not in my unit, but she's in the reserve. And I helped on two different occasions. We organized, we sent down all together. She managed all this. I just helped my little role. Over 500,000 pounds of supplies to PR. And I went down there to volunteer for four days. And this is in October. And this is right after one of the people running for office raised 325,000. So you'd think I should be. And I'm friends with someone who works for the Korean consulate. I remember he messaged me and he said, my other friend on the island just told me that you're down in Puerto Rico helping. And it is incredible. But my question I have for you is, when are you going to stop trying to help this world and take things serious with running for office? <laughs> but I understood Whoa. what he's saying. <laughs> yeah. But that's yeah. the nastiness of what this is. Oh. I just used money I've raised to help feed in the black part of town on Staten Island 
um, the African-American part in one of the schools on families that are in need. So I helped and I'm doing it again right now, giving more, a good amount yeah. of money that I raised for Christmas. Because what the hell? I'm going to look back on my days and I'm going to say, I thank God I raised this money because I paid for my staff and that's why I won. And these little kids weren't eating for Thanksgiving and Christmas? What kind of shit is that? The universe will conspire. I will be taken care of when the time comes in place. And it's when you follow what's in your heart with divine love at all times without equivocation, the universe does bring you what you need and you have to have endurance and trust. You have to understand what your purpose is and live by it at all times. My value systems command me. There is no way I'm going home at night knowing that I've saved this money for the 2020 election when these kids are starving right now or hungry now. But that's not what wins you elections. No, like someone who's coming out from like nonprofit is like, oh, no, 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 no. You can't do any of that still. But a person who's in business gets to still do all their business stuff. Yeah. A, a nonprofit, it helps people. A nonprofit's goal isn't to make money. That's a business's goal. A nonprofit's goal is to help people research something, get something done that's not monetary. That's why it's a nonprofit. But we don't encourage people who know how to run who know how to operate or do good with nonprofits, they are discouraged from joining the political class. And people who make money off of problems, they're the ones who are encouraged to join into that political class. Well, and, and that goes back to just politics and money as well. It's like you you have to be in business to be able to afford to run for office. <laughs> like, it's just or insane. just get in bed with a bunch of people who, who do. You know, I don't have the stories if we were to get into debates, not we as in us, but if I was in a debate, I don't have the stories at legislative level or or even the historical understanding even of different names that passed what mm-hmm. and the bureaucratic level. If someone were to ask me what's your health care plan or what are the issues you have or this doesn't pay, I can say on a broad thing what it is, what I can share I'm not something maybe that I worked at a healthcare company or I managed an office, but I can tell you what it's like to have the person you love most on this Mm -hmm. planet who can't move and subjected to SSI and Medicaid and Medicare Mm -hmm. and what that life is like for them trying to get jobs and what that life is like for us in the ER when you keep getting so many urinary tract infections that that you build up a tolerance to Cipro or any other uh, antibiotic, so they have to do it intravenously, but when you have a spinal cord injury... Your veins don't, it's, it's a nightmare finding the veins, 10, 11 pricks, and then staying all night so you have IV, you have antibiotics through IV going through that. I can tell you what it's like to have to leave your own country at 24 years old with somebody who's paralyzed, 25 was the second time, where you're the person caring for that person's whole life. You go to another country, and I went in debt almost $30,000 paying for these things. We did four of them. We went to Jordan, we went to Mexico, we went to, we were shafted in Jordan, shafted in Mexico. That was a lot of, that was where I went into all that debt. And we did fundraisers for the two in China. I can tell you what that's like. I may not be able to tell you what the programs are we have to help African Americans with getting jobs so much, but I can tell you what the experience is like from my family telling me, my darker color skin family, and my best friends from West Point, undergrads from West Point, graduates from Ivy Leagues, and they have a, an ambiguous name and you can't tell the race. And they tell me what it's like when they go into the office and they're darker color skin. And how things change. I can tell you about that. I may not be able to tell you what it's like going home hungry at night, but I can let you know what the spirit those children have in them itching for discipline and leadership. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
and how they want to do better. They just need a little bit of help living in the house. And help would be providing free lunches so they have more energy in school to learn. I need people to understand this, what they're getting, because they don't know, and that's part of how I was branded. So I went to West Point. I'm an Eagle Scout. I'm in the Jewish Sports Hall of Fame. I was an alternate for the Olympics. I was the world military boxing champion. I'm on the advisory board of Store Tooth, which banks stem cells from the dental pulp and baby teeth. I'm on the advisory board for Stop Soldier Suicide. I'm on the board for Boxer Inc. It's a nonprofit using boxing as a mentorship program in inner city schools, leadership and mentorship at the same time. I'm a co-founder for Team Fight to Walk as well. I have my MBA. I was on the board of directors for USA Boxing, MBA in Human Resource Management. I worked for five years for medical device sales. I worked for Medtronic. That was the best in the world in spinal implants. And I worked for Ethicon, subsidiary of Johnson & Johnson, the best in the world for sutures. Then I worked for a startup. So I've experienced the startup out of the Silicon Valley in medical device sales as well. It was an iPad that takes a picture of the bloody sponges and it can tell you how much blood, just blood and not can- canceling out the saline and the what? amniotic fluid. Right. Yeah, I'm a professional speaker. I'm in the member of the Great Black Speakers Bureau. I get paid to speak. I'm a fitness instructor. I've been a group fitness instructor at Equinox now on the side for nine years. I was an alternate for the Olympics, as I stated before, and I'm a retired professional boxer. I had 15, I went 15-2-1. I won the WBC junior middleweight title. I did this while working full-time for corporate America, while still teaching classes, while having one weekend a month in the Army Reserve, because I am a major in the Army Reserve. I have 14 and a half years now between active duty and reserve time with my first deployment coming up in the beginning of next year. I have all of these things. I come from a mixed background. My mother's Jewish. They came over here as immigrants. She was born in Israel. They grew up in Brighton Beach. I'm first generation on that side. I have come from a product of Europeans raping Africans and mixing with the Native Americans on my father's side. My great-grandmama was the first African-American female woman to vote in the state of Louisiana, or rather in Baton Rouge. She led a march before the civil rights movement to for voting rights, and she was the first female paralegal in the state of of Louisiana. That's my great-grandmama. That's our big mama. My father's father, he was denied the chance to swim and compete in the Olympic trials in his stroke in Louisiana. He was Terrence Howard's complexion because of the complexion of his skin. And he couldn't swim. That's, that's, that's what I come from. My grandfather on my mother's side was conscripted by the Russians to fight the Nazis. You either fight with us or we kill you. And they found out he had a skill. He was a baker. So he had extra special treatment. People took, were not so happy with it, Russian guards, soldiers. So he, they pulled him out one night. They made him dig his own grave. One of them walked off. He, my Zaida, that's in Yiddish, cracked him with the shovel, killed him, put him in his grave, kept digging, waited for the other guy to come. He did the same thing. I later learned, I only learned this at his funeral. I later learned, he passed a few years ago, I, at 92, I think. I later learned that he was shot during that process and still survived when he was put on a work camp on a work train, rather, to a work camp, he got someone to go with him and they slid down the, the poop chute and let the train pass over and that's how they were free. My Baba, my grandmother, she was in prison for a year in Siberia during the Holocaust, World War II. Uh, people are not aware of this background I have. I received the St. Jude's Heart of a Champion, Champion Award. I was the WBC Ambassador of Peace, the World Boxing Council. I was on stage with with Tyson and Holyfield and Riddick Bow and Oscar De La Hoya, who I'm friendly with, and, and Floyd Mayweather and, and Sugar Ray Leonard and Tommy Hearns and Duran. I thought, and Cotto, I thought I was going to get kicked off the stage. Like, who's wow. this guy? Someone doesn't belong up here. If I was the first fight in the history of the Barclays Center, 
Uh, Oscar de, I was on HBO Real Sports, like I said, so when Oscar De La Hoya watched it, he had me fight there, and then he matched my purse when I donated it. Oh, wow. I've had many celebrities take on to this charge, and uh, including Cuba Gooding Jr. and Larry Johnson from the Knicks, and, and uh, Anthony Mason from the Knicks, one of my best friends, before he passed, and John Starks, and um, big fan, Frank Grillo from The Purge. Good buddy, they all work, I met him working out at my gym. I'm, my nickname in boxing is The Rainmaker. And that's when, I don't know if you ever seen the movie, The Power of One. Mm -hmm. Kristen gave me that when, when he asked Morgan Freeman, why do they keep singing that song when they said the myth of the Rainmaker? And he said, the Rainmaker brings people together. You treat everyone the same way. You're kind. The tribes don't fight when they're around you. This takes place in South Africa. The Rainmaker brings, cools things down. The Rainmaker brings hope. Well, when you have somebody mixed with just about everything, growing up alongside the things that he's not mixed with, presenting this life. And then where people get deceived is how kind I am. I think what I've learned, I'm so kind that they forget the other side. The killer in that ring, the person who's had cuts on their eyes from headbutts or punches with blood going in and you can't see, but you still have to fight, fighting with kidney stones, fighting with torn shoulders, fighting with a broken hand and just doing it and fighting through, fighting 10 rounds, 100 for 30 minutes. This whole thing of people saying they're fearless and maybe they are, I'm not saying they aren't, or that I, I've been knocked down, I'll get back up. Well, I wonder, have you actually ever been? What is your version of knocked down? What is it? What have you fought for? What have you given up everything for? I lived from paycheck to paycheck, even when I was working at J&J &J and all that, because I had to get out of debt from everything I owed. And then I used to just, I, I always just keep donating money because that's what makes me happy. And I, it's interesting, my friends, you know, they always see me on with celebrities or in the media or news or being interviewed on this show or whatever. And you guys just have no idea how tough I've created a life for myself because of my commitment to serving this world. And that's how I was raised, paycheck to paycheck. I remember there was a, a rumor that went out on, so I'm gonna dispel this one also. In 2015, when I registered, I registered as an independent, being ignorant to the fact that an independent party actually follows its own set, it just doesn't mm. mean that you're not Democrat yeah, or Republican. Yeah. And a lot and of people in New York get caught by that. Right. I did it in Manhattan. I switched it when I moved into Brooklyn. I didn't switch in the system. A rumor came out. Oh, oh. It happened I've, to you? I've heard of that issue. It happened to yeah. you? Yeah. I, I had a mutual friend of ours who went to the Board of Elections and ended up kind of getting a letter that said, no, Rachel is actually a Democrat. Really? Well, that's what happened. And then the Odyssey puts a paper out. Uh, the Democratic candidate for Congress is neither a Democrat for Staten Island is neither a Democrat nor from Staten Island. First, twenty percent of the district is here. I grew up between New York and Staten Island, and I am a Democrat. And then I had the fearless one take a shot at me on Twitter, stating that uh, you know we're happy to have you in the party. Welcome. That's that's a little clever. Welcome. And well, I didn't respond. So. Uh, I wanted to dispel that because I learned that the rumor is I'm a Manhattan millionaire pretending to live at my mother's in Brooklyn what? so I can run for office. This was shared with me. And the first thing I said was, what? man, I wish that were true. That was the first thing. You know how good my life would be? How many people I could help if I was a millionaire? 
Are you nuts? I wouldn't have to. I wouldn't be a millionaire very long. I'd give (laughs) Give it all away. It's like J.K. Rowling dropping herself off the world's richest list. Right? So they, and I said, where'd you guys get this from? And they said, well, you're a pro boxer. And I said, I'm losing faith. Usually we're in a culture where when you hear something, everyone looks stuff up to validate it. I've learned this. Wait, what culture are you living in? (laughs) You don't think people do fact checks so much? Well, you know, you're right. You're right. I agree. I agree. You know what it is? I guess it's my circle that we do that type. So you're right. I agree. I would have thought that they would have, because usually at least the younger crowds Google stuff after. Yeah, we got something. Most people have something in their pocket that gives them access to the entire yeah. world's instantaneous Everything. amount of facts. It's like it, facts have never been closer and yet never so far away. Well, that's what, this was a fact they ran with. And I, I said, do you guys know that I donated everything I earned my whole career? Where are you getting a millionaire? And I didn't make that type of money in boxing by any means. I donated. Like the whole thing with boxing, it's synonymous. Boxing donating for my with the Boyd yeah. Melson story, speaking in the third person for the first time. <laughs> so that... I was just disheartened me. Yeah. You guys are better than this. Why? Why? And I, and I live by this, this mantra. Small minds talk about other people. Smart minds talk about events. Brilliant minds talk about ideas. You must not, and visions. You must not have too many visions occupying your time that you're trying to achieve greater than yourself if you have free time to evaluate other people's lives. Mm-hmm. Take whatever information you see, which is just a snapshot of a moment, because it's only what your five senses reveal, and casting a judgment and running with that, and then critiquing it. And then even staying in that space with others to talk about it. Why don't we talk about, like, when I talk about president, I don't ever talk about his person. I talk about how the effects of what he's passing may be, because it's the event and how I would like it to be, perhaps. Well, I don't know him. And I'm not going to drop down to that because I'm too busy focused on trying to create. Mm-hmm. That's that's a really good reminder for all of us, I think, and and... Especially coming into a uh, year of the new presidency, um, I know that a lot of people have been focusing on no, but it's also, it's it's create. Um, mm. Things are, you can look at things that are happening and say, yeah, things are being destroyed. But so what are you doing to create things the in facts? their place that are being lost? You know, when you say that, what are you doing? We had a, a fundraiser at the Looney Bin Comedy Club on Staten Island a few weeks ago, and it was a night of comedy. They fit 170 people, $20 a ticket. They were going to give me 75% of each ticket to go where I wanted to to fight the opioid epidemic on the island. And I was going to give it to Celebrate Hope Recovery Center. as part of the Hope program. It's the only Christ-based program on the island, part of the Hope, attached to it. Called up New Yorker One. Can you guys do a preview so people know about this? I, I reposted it so many times on my social media. I had other people on the island repost it. Even people from the church posted, reposted it. And then I called up the advance and I said, can you guys please do a preview so people know? Twelve people showed up that night and none of them were because they even knew that it was a fundraiser. So I had to cover the extra cost out of the money I raised. It is what it is. But it fell into the narrative. And this is one thing I hold dear and I repeat this. The commonality I'm learning and experiencing and seeing amongst those who claim, who, who go by the mantra of make America great again. That word America, they should really cancel out and put the word me again. Make me great again. And I want something else to do it, not me to have to do it. Let me keep doing what I was doing. And I want you to create an environment. It's different. As opposed to thinking, what the hell can I also do within my locus of control to improve not just me, but those around me. Stop saying first make America great again unless America is a single person, which is you and you respective to everybody saying it because that's what I'm seeing. You go on Staten Island 
everyone's running their mouth about this opioid epidemic and know somebody who was hurt and they're suffering and it's very real to them. And they're quick to jump on that. And then I give you something. Just come and watch a night of comedy. Pay to watch the comedy. And I can't blame the people who didn't know, even though there were a lot I did tell who didn't come. Why is this not going in the news? Why? Why are you quick to put an article out which needed to be out earlier this summer, 27 people overdosed in 24 days, but you're not going to put an article helping with the solution. Why? But that's why I decided I wasn't going to wait for the FDA or the government to put that money in or even people. I'm going to lead by example and wait for the rest to join. I cast that space, hold that light, and the shadows disappear. So that's the purpose. Yeah, I have a friend who um, did a degree in social work, and one of the things she talked about, which you probably know about already, is like family systems theory. And when you have these dysfunctional um, groups, or, or you know, there's there's a group of people, and one of them might be functioning very well, and the others are functioning at at various levels. All that can happen is that the person who is living what she calls like your healthy life can either stay where they are, or they can deteriorate. deteriorate. And the only way to bring everyone else up and and that rising tide idea is for that person to, like you said, hold space, stay there, stay true, whatever it takes, and just be the good example and be the person who's leading the way by example. Mm -hmm. You're absolutely right. And that's how we were trained at the academy. Speaking of the academy. Army Navy football games this weekend. Make sure y'all watch. <laughs> I'm heading on down to Philly. It's nice, very nice. Watch it. I agree with lead by yeah. example. You can't go wrong. Yeah, and it will attract the world. You just have to have the endurance. And I and I repeat that often when I speak. You have to have the trust and the endurance. You're following your purpose. Your decisions are in alignment with your heart. With your heart beats with divine love. It brings it an inch closer. Just stay alive and follow your course and your pace, and it will come. It has no choice. We all vibrate. And vibrations always want to catch up to the next higher one. Create your frequency and it will attract. We're just scared. And that's the challenge. We're afraid of doing without to help somebody else. Yeah. And that's a culture. And I think it's because we haven't suffered. Those who do that haven't suffered individually enough to be able to empathize. And then also to know that it will get better. Just stay alive and keep it moving productive. It will get better. And there's that trust. It's not just lead by example. It's living by example is leading by example. Well, and, and this kind of goes back to something I've said privately a few times about the way that progressive activists, particularly in South Brooklyn, are, are doing something I think is amazing that I haven't seen in other large groups of progressives, which is everybody's supporting each other. That support is helping uplift voice voices that didn't get heard before, um, individuals who, I mean... I've I've had some medical stuff going on lately, um, and and just having the support of that community for that has been amazing, um, and that's something I think, particularly in this neighborhood. And I haven't spent a lot of time out on Staten Island, but it, it sounds certainly as if there's communities there that do similar things through the mm-hmm. athletics and that. It you know it it is stuff we can do for each other, and we are doing it for each other, and we can do it more. And it's weird that we don't allow that to trickle up into our politics. That seems to be a really horrible barrier. That there's well, literally in your living, case. There's a lot of people living their life that way, but we don't seem to be electing them. You know, when you said the whole thing about people experience of giving, it makes me think. I know I've been told 
you don't you don't know what it means to truly love until you have your own child. As much as you've loved anybody, and I haven't had a child yet, you're missing out. But when you do, you'll understand it differently. I look at people that live taking care of themselves first and almost only, or those they love. And I hurt for them because they'll never really know what happy means. Mm -hmm. The happiness of doing something good for someone just for the sake of doing it. And that's the why you do it. They get stripped of that the same way, not being... I remember I was told, I feel like parent, they said parents, you know what I'm saying? Parents, like it's own little cult. You have this shared thing. <laughs> well, it's yeah. the same thing with doing something for somebody to help them just because, because it's like, it's my drug. It makes me happy. Well, you walk away knowing you made some small part of the world a better place. I agree. And that's the source of trust. I'll trust anyone who gets happy from helping. Like, I want to see... I th- and I think I, I'm hoping everyone listening, you know, elect someone who you think enjoys and wants and, and gets happy from from helping someone because they're not the person who's going to go out and celebrate when they win an election. They're going to celebrate when they help someone having been in power or been elevated to that position. Make They're going to celebrate making the right decisions and then they're going to keep seeking out to make those right decisions. Well, and, and hopefully when when the decisions, like you said, when something comes along that it's unavoidable to hurt somebody because there's, you know, 300 million, 350 million people, whatever, in the country, um, you know that they feel it as well. I agree. Yeah. I tell a lot of, I said this rhetoric also, you know, this machine has been around for a long, long, long time. And the reasonable idea of one person being able to make all these changes is almost unreasonable. Or the the value I add to it is when you see a lot of votes right now being one on one vote or one one way or another mm-hmm. for policy, or that's preventing something from ever being yeah. brought into policy. Period. So the best you can try to do is adapt a certain way so that you can find your ends to keep promoting the things that are dear to you and the people you represent that you said. But thinking that you're going to sit there and give and I'm going to do this and this and this and this and I'm going to create this, 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 you're setting yourself up to be a liar and have people hate you. Well, not so focused in ego. I'm going to do this. I'm this. going to do Like, no, we're all going to come we're together going to and come something exact, good will happen. This goes right back to our nativism episode where we were talking about how so many people uh, try to explain how they're going to help people based on, oh, I, I grew up here and now I don't have to tell you uh, who do I listen to? in this place that I grew up in. Who are you empathizing with? Tell me all the people. So when you were talking about, oh, they branded me this way, and then you were able to go into that thing about, these are the people I'm listening to. These are the people I interact with. These are the people that I consider my friends, my family. These are the people that drive me. That's what you elect someone on. Because then you know they might listen to me. They might listen to my friend, and they might listen to someone who's different from me, who doesn't give the experiences that I can give. They're going to help. All the people that are surrounding them are going to solve it with them. So find people who have a lot of good friends and who who, who have friends from before they were in politics, because a lot of politicians just have other politicians as friends. Well, and people who consistently try to expand that and and – find new people to talk to and find new people and new experiences to listen to and 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 make that just that should be their life to start with not the the life they adopt to become a politician you know i'm i'm uh i'm very much again about 
charity work and fundraisers. And I thought of a pretty neat idea on the island when I come on back. And hopefully we'll know who's the new congressman. We'll know it the month after when I come back around. If it's Congressman Grimm, if it's Mr. Grimm, who ends up becoming the congressman, I know he's very big into boxing. And I met him before he was a congressman, even before he ran for office. I happened to live next door to this in Manhattan, immediately next door to the business that he paid the people off the books. And I met him before he was going to run. And he told me he boxed. He loves boxing. He was in the Marines. Tough. I'm going to ask. If he wins, let's do an exhibition where we do a fundraiser for the island for the opioid epidemic, yeah. and I'll let him choose which arm of mine I can't use. <laughs> nice. And I want to make sure he stays safe in the ring, doesn't get hurt, doesn't look silly. It's, doesn't get broken like a boy. Yeah, it's a very, it <laughs> is a, it's a very important issue. This, this, and if he if he feels uncomfortable, I'll tell them I'll do with you like I whenever I have anybody who's, who's brand new and doesn't really know what they're doing I will just be on defense and I'll mm-hmm. coach him through like a client right and I'll coach him through so he doesn't embarrass himself because uh, I want him to look good for this it's important yeah and he's a man he's a man's man and I want him to feel like a man's man and when the time comes though I I will also I mean there's always whenever I get in there and I do this with people sometimes I have to remind people that all because I'm allowing to work with you, don't try to take advantage. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I tag them once hard and it kind right. of resets. The, they remember. Yeah. yeah. Well, fortunately, I'm not a reporter. So I'll let him know this also. When I challenge him and you want to get in, just be weary. I don't want this to go a certain way because you you forgot who you were in with. Right. And hopefully it will raise some money. Yeah, do and it. if if it's if it's for a good cause, I can't see why I he wouldn't say no. Not. If that happens, I'll buy takes, a ticket. He <laughs> takes he takes a lot of pride in his boxing, and that he goes to gyms. I remember when I fought at the Barclays Center, and I had my hand raised, and he was pinned up against the ring, wanting to take a picture with me and be a fan. And I took a picture with him, and it's just interesting how our worlds have bringing us back yeah. together, even yeah. before office, and how Congressman Donovan's. My mother has a jewelry business now for 32 years in Bay Ridge mm-hmm. here, 13th between 73 and 74, called Seagal Jewelers, and they share a wall with Donovan's office. And it used to be Congressman Grimm's office, so my world keeps catching up yeah. and, and putting me <laughs> with them. Everyone kind of comes back to you. Yeah, you better, right? Or, <laughs> laying, some, laying some 2020 groundwork. <laughs> I, I, again, and it's hard. I, I'm happy you gave me a chance to talk about. I, I feel like I showed a different side of myself. I, I let the silly side of myself be the side that most people see because I love being a child and I love people feeling comfortable around me. So I kind of keep my intellect to the back some, pretty much to the back. My mother always gives me a hard time because she says, Josie, I need people to realize what you have in your brain. Everyone's going to think you're stupid. You can't run for office. And I say, calm down. I'm being me. I'm fine. Don't yeah. worry. It'll come when it comes <laughs> all the time. And I'm not, thank you for giving me the opportunity to broadcast that aspect of what hasn't been punched out of my head yet. <laughs> no, well, thank and you so much. of course, I have shared this. I am as vicious as I am loving, especially when it comes to <laughs> bullying or hurting people or acting unethically or immoral or self-serving as your primary reason. I'm a very nasty human being when it comes to that, when it comes to picking on somebody else or a group, very nasty, very. And I have a tremendously strong handshake. And I'd ask everyone, Boyd, you know, Boyd Melson, Emerson Mary, 
please do me the favor that I've learned that really nobody's done. Mm-hmm. Typoid mousing into Google and typoid mousing into YouTube. Watch about the 40 videos showing my life that are there that no one wants to look up because they want to just take one thing and run with it. And about the, I think the first 20 pages on Google are just new story after new story. If you type in Boyd Melson, 20 or 30 pages, don't be lazy and don't be selective with when you want to look through. And if you want to support me and you're only supporting me because I'm, I'm raised more, uh, what I've raised or what the video, don't. Or because I'm a Democrat, don't. I don't want your support only because I'm a Democrat and you want a Democrat in office. Mm -hmm. Look at the human. And if they're a Republican and you believe in them, even if you're a Democrat, change your damn thing and vote for the person you believe in because of the human they are, not because of the party they're with. Mm -hmm. I went through this one time with a team I was with uh, for, they were a fundraising team and I got rid of them. A short, uh, I spent a quarter with them, and I remember when I first met them, and they started talking about Republicans, and they kept saying those people, them people, they, those. And I said, guys, I understand to an extent why in the public eye you have to, but no effing way in-house are we going to be mm. speaking this way. And they go, no, no, you don't, no, 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 we're going to be quiet now and listen to this part. Because someone's a Democrat doesn't mean that they're a good person. Someone, because someone's a Republican doesn't mean they're a bad person. Here's my little case example. You have a mother. The mother has a child who's paralyzed. You have two people running for office, a Democrat and a Republican. The Republican's parent happened to be paralyzed. So on the Republican's agenda, it's to push stem cell medicine and regenerative medicine research and try to find a cure for paralysis. So that mother that year decides to register as a, as a Republican and vote for this woman. Did that mother just become them, they, those? Or is that a human who won't do anything so her baby walks again? Mm-hmm. Ask the question why before you judge. And if you come to me with nasty ass rhetoric, I'm going to be very clever with how I shut you down. And don't think you're going to overspeak and intimidate me. And I think that's something that we need to apply to every other candidate now. Look through the data, people. Go through and and not just, you know, what they're saying right now, but what they've done in the past. Um, Because that's going to show you what kind of person they are. But thanks so much for coming out. I love this. You've set a new bar. Yeah. Yeah. Aw. I love this. Set the bar for everyone else coming out. Well, (laughs) we'll see when I come back and we'll see what the state is in for the next election if there's a need. But I'll tell you, I'm moving. As soon as I come back, I'm moving, buying a home on on the island. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm going to use my combat pay and buy a home. And I spoke to my buddy, my big brother. He's mentoring me now. Bobby Digital is his name. You know, Bobby Digi. He's president of the Staten Island Democrat Association. And I said, prepare yourself. When I come back, we have a tremendous amount of work. I'm going to be channeling all the energies towards everything that I've done that has ended in some sort of goodness for this world all into this island outside of work. Everything. Everyone on this island will know who I am by the time the next election comes, whether I run or not, because I'm going to lead with this. And I read this phrase, somebody saying that, I don't know, it was a rap song, I think. You're confusing my cockiness from life experience mm-hmm. where I've seen the results when I've put myself out there and it's holding on to that space that I'll hold in a cocky aspect manner about myself because I know the vision I have to get to and I'm not, if you're not with me, step to the side, you're in the way. That's what I speak. We don't, 
with people dying and people starving and people out of work, we don't have time to start critiquing how they're speaking when they say something now or the yeah. nastiness they may be saying. That's part of it. But please focus on what they're saying, not how they're saying it at yes. the same time. Don't go, go, go for actual points, not style points. Right. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, Thank yeah. you. You hear me, Boyd Melson. I'm the only Boyd Melson on this planet. So you go to Instagram, Twitter, <laughs> Facebook. Like the only one alive. And yeah. all, all of this will be in the show notes for sure. Oh, thank you guys. It was on a tremendous time being here. I loved this. All right. Anytime. Feel free to come back. <laughs> yeah, thank you. And that was Boyd Melson, who just left the congressional race for CD11. We really appreciate his coming in to speak with us. And by the way, listeners, stay tuned till after the music for a Radio Free Bay Ridge exclusive. Boyd Melson's endorsement for the congressional race. So we hope that this has set the bar for what you're going to be expecting from the other candidates that are going to be coming into the studio. And oh boy, are they coming in. We've got a lot of interviews planned, you guys. It's going to be really fun. So we're giving an opportunity for everyone in this race, and it is crowded, to actually have some airtime, some space to breathe. Some quality time with you, their possible constituents. And explaining to you what they wish you knew about them but what they wish you knew about the issues that they care about. So we encourage you to listen through, hold off judgment until you've heard everyone. They will be coming in the next month. And engage with them on Twitter. Talk to them on their social media. You know, get out there. Talk to these people. They're going to possibly represent you. Why waste the opportunity? So we hope you enjoyed the episode. Um, We've got a doozy coming up on education. We're going to look into Justin Brannon's promise of a new school in the district. And exactly what goes into building a school and what the process is and how we as a community can help. So look forward to that. Look forward to more CD11 interviews, and we hope to see you next time. And until then, stay free, Bay Ridge. I will be supporting Michael DeVito in New York's 11th District's run for the Democratic primary. Michael is an extraordinary man and you get the sense of his integrity and his his honor just by listening to him speak and looking into his eyes while he speaks and the energy he promotes forward. He has served our country in uniform for eight years serving in the Marines. Um, Just as important to me, he serves the youth daily, those on Staten Island in great need, uh, trying to offer them a step uh, towards hope before God will only fall into the hands of the system, uh, the legal system, that is. He's just he's extraordinarily passionate. He puts his heart where his mouth is, and uh, he doesn't fluff anything. Michael understands that there is no additional time to parade uh, anything or to try to offer any glamour. There's just him. There is what is. There's him putting himself forward and exposing himself and being present. And that is what this district needs. He is on the ground. If a float is going by, he's the guy on the ground in the crowd, intermixing and meeting as opposed to being on one of the cars in the float. So Michael DeVito is my man. I am one billion percent behind him for this race in the Democratic primary for New York's 11th district. Thank you.